listen, I, I want to pray for us, okay? And uh, I, was t- I was telling the guys backstage, um, tonight is, is going to be an adventure, all right? And so um, and you're like, well, every night is, and that may be fair, um, but, but tonight uh, we're, we, need to, we, need, we need to just go for it, all of us together. So I'm going to pray that that happens, and, uh, and then we're just going to, we're going to dive in. No more plagues. Um, this is post-plague, all right? So let's pray and watch and see what the Lord will do here tonight. Uh, Father, um, I thank you for your word, and I thank you tonight that um, we have this amazing chance to, to rest in your scriptures, in words that, um, that breathe life, in words that are living and active, in words that um, cut and convict. And so I pray tonight, God, by your mercy and for your glory, that you would teach us in ways that we never thought possible. In your great and holy name, and all God's people said, amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Now, uh, last night, me and my family uh, were at the park. This is a very a common occurrence for uh, us. I love going to the park. I love being with my kids. So um, we decided to do a picnic last night. And uh, so we went to a park here in St. Charles and had a picnic. And I started walking around the playground, and I noticed... Uh, this massive hill on the back of the, the playground. And when, when I mean massive, I'm talking about like two or 300 yards away, and it looked like a small mountain. I mean, it was like, man, this would be awesome. So I, I, I turned to my kids, and I just, I look at them, I'm like, let's go, kids, right? And so me and my kids start huffing, we're like walking fast, and then all of a sudden, about halfway there, we hit a minefield of goose feces, okay? Um, or duck, whatever it was. Okay, so I'm like, I'm like trying to corral my children. I'm like, listen, just follow in daddy's steps and there will be no stepping in of the poo, you know. And so I'm kind of guiding them and, you know, I look back and they're literally like everywhere I step, you know, we're trying not to touch the bombs. And, and, and then we get to the base of this mountain and, uh, and, we, and we climb it, right. And in this unbelievable moment that my wife happened to capture, uh, this is what this looked like last night, pretty crazy. So, um, as you can see, it was at least a 90-degree angle um, of a mountain, um, at least-ish. Um, but as I was uh, walking back down, I was thinking about the beauty of me telling my children, let's go. And the beauty of my kids following. And then the beauty of accomplishing or finally getting there and uh, getting to hold their hands in triumph. And then what we did just after that is I started pushing them and rolling them down the hill. And then they wanted more. And so we just like did that for 15 minutes. Um, It was beautiful. It was beautiful to journey together. And um, I feel like for many of us as as we're trying to understand the mentality of what's going on in the nation of Israel, we have to understand 430 years worth of slavery is all of a sudden released. And what's going to happen post the release of that slavery is a great dad who's saying, let's go, kids. It's time. Listen, follow me. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to be there every step of the way. I'm not going to leave you. You need to understand. I'm going to set a structure up. I'm, I'm going to breathe life into this community. We're literally going to together breathe life into this nation. Just follow me. 
I say all that because there's going to be some very confusing things that even happen tonight and through our course uh, for the rest of Exodus that you'll be wondering what's going on. I want to make it very clear right now. God is guiding his people. His people have been released from slavery. They've seen ten crazy plagues, including the killing of the firstborn of every Egyptian. They were spared because of the blood that was on their doorpost, and they get out of slavery, and now God says, follow me. Let's go. It's time. No more slavery. So we pick up post-plagues in Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. When you're there, say, I am there. Awesome. This gets weird right away. Look at this. And the Lord, verse 43, said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Why in the world would God say this? This seems like a downer. You got 1.5 or so million people journeying together out of slavery. And then some of God's first words post-slavery is, No foreigner shall eat of the Passover meal that I've just instructed you to do. Well, you remember, if you were here on Easter, we saw that there was a mixed multitude, the scripture talks about, that journeyed with the Israelites. So in other words, all 1.5 million people start journeying out of Egypt, and there are some others that are like, looks like this is where the party's at, you know? And, And so as you would... And when you walk out of your house and you see 1.5 million people walking by on the street, like maybe some of you would pack up too and be like, well, maybe they're leaving because something bad is back there, you know. And, And so a mixed multitude now join in. Well, God is addressing the people who have joined in. He says, no foreigner shall eat of it. So the question is, what is he doing? Immediately after these people are released, what is he structuring in their minds? Just let that question hang. Verse 44, but he says, every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have what? Circumcised him. Uh, This probably isn't going to go on your Facebook page tonight, you know? Um, Right? Like this isn't one of those verses that that you build a great theological discussion around, okay? Good chance this isn't coming up at the dinner table on Thanksgiving, right? Hey, have you guys ever read uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 44? It says, but every slave that is bought by money may eat of it if you have circumcised him, you know? And then you kind of discuss. Well, you remember back in the days of Abraham, and we've seen this in Moses and Aaron's life as well, circumcision is a symbol of the covenant, And so what God is pointing to is the covenantal relationship that began between God and Abraham and now is being furthered through Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites. He says, no foreigner, verse 45, or hired worker may eat of it. God has one purpose that I can see immediately after the release of slavery. He is forming shaping, speaking into the identity of these former slaves. 1.5 million or so people that know hard work, that know watching people die, that know getting whipped across their back if they're not working hard enough, all they know is slavery, generations worth of slavery, and then all of a sudden they're set free. And so what God does in his love 
is he steps right in and he begins to mold their identity much like he has done with you. Uh, Next slide. The moment that these chains are released, the chains and the shackles of your sin, of your former life, of the bondage that held you for so long, the moment that those break because of a bloody cross and an empty tomb, the redemption that can only come in Christ, the moment those things break, God instills His Holy Spirit to begin to shape your new identity in Him. Are you with me, church? He says you're a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. The shackles are off. That is what He is doing with the nation of Israel. He's stepping in and saying, listen, listen, listen. No foreigner shall eat of it. In other words, I'm distinguishing you as my people. You're mine. You're no one else's. No one else can claim that, that, that we're in relationship like you and I. Is anyone else encouraged tonight that once you are his, no one, no one can recant on that relationship? Come on. No one can say, no, you're not God's. Because you've got a great sovereign God saying, I don't think so. He's mine. She's mine. You can say whatever you want. There with me. This awesome passage, I think, will help uh, phrase it for us. Looks like we lost it. In uh, Romans chapter 8. Flip there real quick. Just listen to this, guys. Beautiful text. Here's what uh, Paul says. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit, look at, of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit, look at this, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You come to Christ, Christ shapes and changes your identity. And isn't it beautiful that a loving, gracious, merciful God doesn't break the chains of slavery from the Israelites and say, you guys figure it out. Have fun. 1.5 million of you. You guys should be able to dance out there, you know. Big wilderness, a lot of land. No, he is right by them speaking to them about his distinction of them versus others. It shall be, says verse 46, eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And if you're just joining us tonight, this is a really strange text, right? If you're like, what in the world? Let me read it again. It shall, the Passover meal, be eaten in one house. It's to be eaten inside. And you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, okay? And you shall not break any of the Passover lamb's bones. Interestingly enough, uh, for those of you guys that have uh, been studying with us in uh, the daily John Gospel series... In John chapter 19, the scripture records this. Listen, the scripture records that when the soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus, they saw that Jesus was already dead. And so they did not, as prophecy said, they did not break his legs. So is it crazy to anyone else that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, God says, the Passover lamb, you're not to break any of its bones. And then the perfect Passover lamb sits on a cross with no broken bones. Pretty crazy, huh? So that's who we have in Christ. And look what verse 47 says. God kind of giving an oomph to his punch. He says, 
all the congregation, second time we've seen this word, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This meal is for everyone in Israel. It's for everybody. We're all going to keep it together. Now, I don't know how many of you have read Exodus before, okay? Um, and and I'm, I'm guessing that there's a good handful of you, and I'm sure a good handful of you know some of the stories, but I'm guessing from chapters like 25 on, most of you haven't spent some time reading those chapters. What we're beginning to see here is God set up structures and rhythms and systems to life. But it causes us to wonder why. Why does this even matter? God, just tell them to eat the Passover. Why do they have to eat it inside? Why do they have to not eat of any of the flour? Why do they have to not break its bones? Like, why all of the restrictions? Why all the structure? Doesn't it seem weird to you? Like, wasn't he just say, look, we're going to celebrate the Passover. Sounds good, everybody? Just figure it out on your own. You know, use some discernment and your own discretion, and then we'll all come together and we'll celebrate. Why is he so specific? If you're building an identity for a nation of people, then it must be clear who's in charge. Think of the terrible dictatorships that our world has experienced. What have they done? They've set up systems and they set up structures and they've connected it to themselves to what? Build a system of authority. Obviously, that authority was used at times very misappropriately, but, but in this case, it's not necessarily about flesh and it's not necessarily about eating inside the house or outside of the house, though ultimately all of it will be symbolic. The necessity is I am in charge and I love you and I'm with you. Listen to me nation of Israel. You're my people. I will not abandon you. Please trust. Please trust that my voice will not lead us astray. So now you start to look at your life, all the systems, all the structures, all the specifics. Isn't it crazy that we all got a lot of specifics that are very, very specific to us? Say that four times, right? Like, isn't it crazy that all of us, like, if you just took one person's story there are intricacies about them that no one else in the world looks like. And yet God in his grace, I believe, setting up within our individuality this sense of the gospel is together to show who is over it all and who's in authority. He says in verse 47, all the congregation of Israel will keep this Passover. Verse 48, crazier still, if a stranger... Shall, shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native, excuse me, of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So he's, he's providing some exceptions. He's saying if this situation presents itself, then it's okay if they take the meal, of course, if the males be circumcised. There, verse 49, shall be one law, for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And then, my friends, verse 50 is capturing all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Have you ever stopped to think about how this message is getting passed down? You got 1.5 million people on a road trip. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking how sometimes it's hard to communicate things to the back of the van, right? Right? 
your kids are like, like just enthralled in the DVD and you're trying to ask them a question over and over and over, you know, and they, I can't hear you, what, you know, kids somehow surprisingly learn those games at a very young age, what, I can't, you know, turn it up, would you, I mean, they're, they're crazy, right? So how is this message getting passed down? How, is, how are 1.5 million people hearing about the specifics of this? That, to me, is a marvel in and of itself. And the, more, the, the larger marvel is verse 50. All the people of Israel did just that. They listened, all of them. They've come out. They've been released from slavery. There's been some very specific things added to their life. And, and they listened, all of them. Verse 51. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by, the, by their hosts. Um, the Lord is guiding them, and the people are listening. And the question for you and I is, the Lord is guiding, but are you following? Um, listen, it will be very clear throughout the book of Exodus, including next week where we see a very specific thing, um, the Lord is definitely making himself visible. And so he's providing direction for his people and instruction for his people. And he's getting specific and he's being general. And right now the people are listening. But what I'm wondering for you is how do you justify as a follower of Christ your lack of listening? Uh, what excuses have you come up with to look at the specific instructions of a God who is trying to guide you? In other words, like when, when Jesus says, love your enemies, there are some people that think that that's like a horrible dictator up in heaven saying, love your enemies, right? And that he's just like trying to get at us. I, I can't wait to watch those people try to love their enemies, you know? This is going to be awesome. Like they're going to screw it up. Their enemies are going to hate them. This, this is going to, like... Is that your picture of God? Like, is your picture of God in this instance, that God's up there, oh, yeah, and you can't eat outside, and you only can eat inside, you know? And you guys got to be circumcised. <laughs> you know, like, is that your picture of God? Is that your picture of God? That, that somehow he's creating all of these regulations and then enjoying watching his people be miserable? Or is your picture of God that he said, love your enemies, because he really believes that that's the best way to live. That in loving our enemies, there's a, a freedom from slavery that exists. Or when Jesus uh, said, listen, put me first above all things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That, that turning to idolatry will kill you. Is it possible that in his saying that, the belief was that if we adhere to that guidance that it's a better way to live. Isn't your life one of the greatest examples? The times that you have been most miserable. Isn't it when you are being disobedient? Come on. Like the times when you have found yourself most distraught, aren't they the times as a believer where you've been the farthest from God? And then still in those times, we're still like pumping our fists at the Lord, right? Why did you do this? Why did you do this? And God's like, I've, I'm trying to guide you here. In fact, I've given my spirit that resides in you to direct every step of yours. Follow me. Uh, so before we move on, I come back to the very first words of Jesus to the disciples on a lake. 
What does he say? He says, come what? Follow me. He doesn't say, hey, boys, um, here, here's the plan. We're going to kind of like um, start walking and um, we're going to join with this rabbi over here and lock arms with him. I'm sure he has some good stuff to say. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to celebrate the sect of religion in Jericho and, you know, adhere to those leaders. No, he, he says one thing. He says, come follow me. There is nothing and no one else that you need to follow. Follow me, boys. I will guide you. I will not lead you astray. And all of this is because I love you. Isn't it interesting to anyone else that people, maybe you, still view God as some God that is guiding us out of some form of hatred for us? That is not the God of the Bible. Amen? It's not the God of the Bible. He's guiding in his love his people And his guidance gets even more interesting. Then in verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, verse (laughs) 1, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, and what does he say? Is mine. Well, the word... uh, The word consecrate is the Hebrew word kadesh, and it means to set apart, okay? So let's read it again. Set apart to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Why? Why would God, just on the other side of slavery, say, all the firstborn, they're mine? Mark, I thought you just said everyone was his. I thought you just said the congregation of Israel was his. Why would he in this moment say the firstborn? Why would he make that separation? Because he has just, and the nation has just seen every firstborn Egyptian, what? Die in peril. The Israelites have heard the cry. And so now God, in a move to show again his love, his care, and his looking out for his people, he says, listen, we're all going to remember what happened out there. They died, and you, you were saved. You lived. So all of the firstborn are going to be mine as a way to remember the fact that I have been extremely merciful on you Israelites. Because remember, did they deserve to be released? It's not like they were holding jamborees in celebration for the Lord. They didn't have like, you know, God tattoos all over their arms. I mean, they they weren't like really pious Jews at this point. There really wasn't even such a thing. God in his mercy said, you're my people. And so he says, we're going to set apart the firstborns, man and beast, so that we can all remember the work that I've done in Egypt. Then he says this, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember This day in which you came out from Egypt. Right? Hold on. You you guys picture this word, Charlton Heston? Come on, come on, come on, right? I I had to do some research on Charlton Heston. I thought the the brother was still living. Um, RIP 208, okay, 2008. Uh, We were having an argument. I was like, no, I think he's still living. No, okay. Great, dude. You, You guys have seen the movie, right? Ten Commandments, right? So just imagine this. Like, you're the nation of Israel. Remember this day. Right? The day that we were released from Egypt. Like, just imagine the masses of people and the people in the back, like the, you know, the 90-year-old dude back there. He's like, what? You know what I'm saying? And, like, people are passing it down. Powerful moment, right? 
when Moses looks across the vast amount of freed slaves, and he says, remember this day, the day that you came out of Egypt. Uh, fill in your blank. Remember this day, the day that you came out of alcoholism. A marriage that you thought had no room for a pair, and then all of a sudden God pulled it all together. A sex addiction. A judgmental mind and heart. A gossipy mouth. Remember the day that you came out of these things that held you captive, that held you enslaved. Remember the day that you came out. That you walked out of those things. Remember the freedom that you experienced, the life that you're living. Remember Listen, church, what I'm saying is we don't remember well enough. I've said it many times over here. People, I feel like sometimes, are so scared to share their testimony in fear of judgment. Let me just make sure all of you understand. In this place, listen, part of what we celebrate is your past. And I know there's a lot of like small groups and and others that would say, listen, leave your past behind. Here we say, in Christ, talk about your past that we can see what God has done. We have to see the journey. We have to be able to look back and remember when you came out of all of that slavery so that we can see what true freedom looks like. You guys see what I'm saying? We can't be fearful of that. But what will happen in our church is if people do start sharing that small group settings, lot families, even in the midst of conversations here, and then all of a sudden our judgmental hearts start to reign true, then what we will do is we will erase the past. And then live not in light of what God has done, but in the hope only of what God will do. And my friends, it's a beautiful union. When your life is lived in light of what he's done and in hope of what he'll do. If it's one of those things, I believe that is not life. But when all of a sudden chaos happens, where do you find yourself? Maybe just hoping instead of looking back at the track record that God has proven over and over and over that he will redeem. He's got a good track record, anyone, right? Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. I said this last time. This is a restructuring of, in verse 4, the the Jewish calendar, kind of the end of March, our end of March and beginning of April. And when the Lord, verse 5, brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and some of you are like, I I don't know that I want to go there, Um, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, now you want to go there, you shall keep this service in this month. So he's setting up this rhythm of remembrance. God, right after these slaves have been released, he sets up a rhythm of remembrance. What is your rhythm of remembrance? How do you remember to remember? How have you structured your life so that not just once or twice a day, but all day, there are rhythms for you to ponder the beauty of a cross and an empty tomb? Listen, it doesn't take me long. Okay, you give me 10 seconds and I start thinking on the gospel, it doesn't take me long for my heart to start jumping out of my chest. Anybody, right? 
It doesn't take me long. And I don't have to muster up some kind of emotion. I start thinking again of where I was and what God's doing and what he's done. And all of a sudden, this heart starts pumping out of the chest. And I'm like, I do not deserve any piece of the identity that you've given me. God, thank you for who you are. And all of a sudden, in the office, wherever, I'm just celebrating what God is. Imagine a life filled with that. Not just in the happy moments, but in the times when you're struggling. God sets up for his people, after being released from slavery, a rhythm to remembrance. Verse 6, he says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. This is what we saw last week, this no yeast cracker-like matzah bread. Unleavened bread, verse 7, shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. As I've already said, there's going to be these strange things that we're like, why, God? Why the specifics here? Why is this necessary? God is establishing structure for this nation that needs to understand who their identity is in him. You shall, look at this, tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Foreshadowing. Anybody know how many adults from uh, this 1.5 million people get to the promised land? Two. Those percentages aren't favorable. Okay? So do you notice here what God says? He says, therefore, you shall keep this, uh, you shall keep this statute and all of it will be what, what he did for you. It is because, verse 8, of what the Lord did for what? For me when I came out of Egypt. But in reality, many people will be saying it's what the Lord did for us. He was saying this testimony as, as if it would be firsthand. And this remembrance is for you to be able to testify to the generations after you what I have done. And only two adults from 1.5 million will see the promised land because of their inability and unwillingness to submit. Verse 9, and it shall be to you a sign on your hand. This, is not, this isn't like a stamp that you get at the carnival, okay? Um, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, multiple times we've seen this, for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. What he's saying is, you, who you are, what you show, what you speak, you will be a communicator of being released from slavery. Verse 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year, a rhythm to remembrance. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first uh, all, the, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord. And let's keep going. Verse 13, really crazy. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Come on now, right? Can you just imagine the conversation on the way home in the car, right? Man, that one verse really got me. The whole like donkey lamb, that was awesome, right? But, but what is he saying? What is he saying? He's, he's saying like, look. I want to make sure, and part of this rhythm to remembrance, nation of Israel, that you understand that there is a sacrificial system. And so for a donkey, 
who finds itself in need of something else to atone, then in that case provide a lamb. Or if you will, middle middle verse 13, uh, 13, or if you will not redeem it, it shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Verse 14, and when in time to come to your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him again, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. What God is making clear is, if this is not being talked about in your houses, what kind of house is it? And he's pointing not to the parents' pursuit, per se, but to the kids asking questions because they're watching their parents live the rhythm of remembrance. So we can ask a very simple question then of our parents, not just of their leadership in the home, but are your kids asking you questions? If they're not, I would say clearly they're not seeing a rhythm to remembrance. Look at all the other questions they ask, right? Kids are phenomenal question askers. I mean, they ask questions about everything they see. So if they do not see in your home a rhythm to remembrance, they will not be asking questions about the strong hand of God in your family. Do you guys see what I'm saying? One of the greatest indicators that the gospel has invaded your house is your kids asking questions about the Lord. And some of you are fearful because you're like, I don't know what I would say. Uh, Some of you don't want your 8-year-old, your 9-year-old to say, so daddy... Um, Tell me again about covenant, because I heard that word, and I'm not sure if it's a cuss word, if it's a good word. Like, tell me again what that is. And some of you are incredibly fearful of that. Listen, here's what I've learned with my kids and everybody else. It's okay to say, I don't know. Let's talk about it tomorrow. Think of the beauty that you would have with your daughter or your son when you come back with pages filled with notes. And pictures, right? Because you know they're going to probably need a little help there, with the, right? And you like bring the crayons, right? And you and your son or daughter get to sit down and talk about the question that they asked. Uh, but most parents find ourselves not desiring to make time. Um, can I say one more thing to you parents? Because this is huge in my heart and clearly was instrumental to God's distinguishing identity. You all were a child in a house, right? Every single one of us. Um, And some of you, different homes than others. Some of you were adopted. Some of you guys spent um, a time in a a foster parent's house or or even in an orphanage, potentially. We were all somehow, in some way, we grew up under some kind of authority structure. Uh, Think about now what you would have wished the conversations would have been like when you were growing up. And now on this side of the conversation, imagine the beauty of seven, eight, nine, six, five, four, three-year-olds. And two in Jedi talk, you know, like Ewok talk. Conversating with us, saying, like, Daddy, could you please tell me again why it is that we do this? The beauty of getting to tell my kids why people come over on Sundays is awesome. Kids, here comes the church, right? We get to celebrate again that God is alive. God clearly wants this embedded in the identity of the nation of Israel. 
Verse 14 again. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. The Lord has redeemed. For when Pharaoh, verse 15, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Uh, do you guys see, you guys see what's going on here? What is God implying to the son? What is God implying to the son? Come on. Do you, do, you, do you hold back from the heart stuff? Look at it again. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of slavery. Do you guys see an end to the parentheses? I don't. So in other words, what they're continuing to, to tell the son, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Come on now. Like our, our kids need to grow up in a culture. We need to grow up in a culture as a body that is wrestling with the hard stuff. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, he says, I redeem. End of parentheses. And finally, verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or a frontlets between your eyes. <laughs> um, some of us bigger frontlets than others. You know what I'm saying? Like these little creases right here. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, um, I know many of you guys, and me, even me going into this text, I was like, this, this is fairly weird. Um, this, this is strange. Um, this is a strange rhythm. We've got some epic stories coming up. This seems transitional. This seems like, why did you put it in here? I feel like this is why he put it in here. Next slide. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the scripture says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, what's the word? A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what I see predominantly in Christian culture one shackle on and one shackle off. People that have been led out of slavery by the grace of the gospel, but are living in multiple worlds. They have one hand in slavery, one hand that kind of enjoys the comfort of what this provided, one hand confused about their identity, and then another one that's been released and it's been released enough that it provides enough hope that it's all okay. And many of you feel like you're in this constant tug of war. Is the shackle winning? Is the freedom winning? Is this past winning? Is the present winning? Or is who I am in Christ that I need to continue to remind myself winning? But what the scripture says is we have been called out of darkness into marvelous light to, in light of him, proclaim the excellencies of who he is. Once, look at this, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Years and years and years worth of developing the nation of Israel so that Christ could come and say, now Jew or Greek, everybody in Christ and Christ alone is God's people. And so this beautiful text ends, look, 
but once you had not received mercy, but now in Christ you have received mercy. The question that I want to ask every single one of you tonight is who are you? And I'm not saying yesterday, and I'm definitely not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about tonight. Who are you? Who are you? God immediately after releasing his people from slavery is honing, teaching, developing their identity. As a congregation and as a people. He's showing them who's in authority and who's in submission. What I'm asking you is, who are you? Who do you believe in your heart that you are? Saved, redeemed, freed, still in bondage, not sure, confused. Somewhere in between. Your life communicates exactly how you feel, exactly what you believe, exactly what you think. Who are you? I read this, and what my heart says is I want to be that. Anybody else? Like there's nothing about that that I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'd rather not be that. I'd rather not be his possession. I'd rather be my own. There's nothing about that that says, "Ah, I'm not sure. So then why the tug of war? Why the confused identity? Listen, for every single one of us, there's a taste of that slavery that the enemy is still lingering, dangling, hanging in front of you. Don't you remember what it was like? Come on, it was was freeing. It provided you so much pleasure. It was exactly what you needed to get over that tough time. Remember, it was your comfort. Don't you remember? Uh, What I want to do in my life and what I pray for yours is we take an enemy's opportunity at trying to help us remember how great it tastes And we raise it, how incredible grace not tastes, but is. And we look at an enemy who is dangling. Hey, remember? Come on, just go put the shackle back on. All all your questions are answered. It's really easy to live like this. And instead we say, no, in our rhythm to remembrance, I remember what freedom is. I remember when the chains were lifted off. I remember who I am in Christ and who God is. That is what God is establishing with these people. Who am I and who are you? And I feel like most of us, it's like one or the other. We got a good concept of who we are and a a bad concept of who he is or vice versa. My friends, they work in conjunction. Who is God and who are you? And if uh, if you see a union with those things, then tonight... You stand in victory and say, in Christ, I'm God's possession. What else do I need? I'm not a slave any longer to anything from my past. Today's a new day in Christ. Isn't it awesome to think that together we can be a congregation of people who haven't just been freed in term, but have been freed indeed? Let's stand together. Come on.
I want to end tonight just um, very practically with you. All of us will remember in different ways. All of us will understand things differently. What I'm challenging every single one of you to do tonight before you go to bed is to ask God to help show you what rhythm of remembrance needs to be embraced in your life. And yeah, maybe it's a scripture on your dash. Maybe it's something on the bathroom mirror. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend. But I pray ultimately, my friends, it's the power of God's word and the power of the spirit that's in you reminding you again that you are his. And so if you're here tonight and you're not, what I'm telling you is you can be. You can be his possession too. Loved in spite of who you are. Given grace in spite of every sin you've committed. Shown mercy even though you deserve death. In the person of Christ, tonight could be the night that you came out of slavery. So Father, I pray that that be the case for my brothers and sisters. That all of us, God, would not find one hand still with shackles and another freed, but that all of us tonight would find our hope in who you are and who you've made us to be, O oh God. Free us, birth identity in us, and help us believe who we are in you.